0: The next RevDem podcast. My name is Kasia Krzyżanowska, the RevDem editor. Our guest today is Professor Paul Bro- Blocker. He is associate professor in sociology and social theory and Jean monet Chair in European Political Sociology at the Institute of Sociological Studies at Charles University in Prague. He has published numerous articles and books on constitutional sociology, constitutional politics, and change as well as on democracy. Welcome, Paul.
1: Good morning. Maybe I should immediately state that in the meantime, I became an associate professor at the University of Bologna. Um, yeah,
0: yeah, actually, yeah, this should be also added. So we are recording the conversation just at the beginning of the, uh, at the beginning of the conference on the future of Europe. So many themes we will discuss today will, will reflect some of the fears and hope this event raises. So, in your recent paper in the Reconnect series, you argue that we have a crisis both of the rule of law and democracy within the member states and on the European Union level. You also suggest that the way to fight this crisis lies not in the legalistic enforcement of the rule of law principles, as envisioned by the EU, most notably by the Commission, but rather in enhancing social, societal embeddedness of the rule of law. And in this conversation, we will try to unpack all those claims that you made in paper, starting from your bleak diagnosis of democracy in the EU. And now I remember the old paper uh, from perhaps a decade ago, uh, in which you developed a concept of constitutional anomy. So it describes the situation of a mismatch between a constitutional imaginary of institutions and poly- political and social context in it it actually operates. So this would be my question to you. Can we say, based on your observations, that in the EU we are now experiencing a democratic anomaly? or perhaps something else that we should call a fugitive democracy or something totally different?
1: Well, um, it's interesting that you bring up this, uh, this concept of, of uh, constitutional anomie, uh, which something like 10 years ago or so I, I coined uh, with the idea to indicate a tension or a gap between the type of, of constitutional liberal parliamentary democracy that was being or that had been implemented and institutionalized in, in the former communist countries uh, and the actual sort of uh, um, societal democratic participatory uh, developments uh, within wider society. And so I think it makes sense to also to, to link this uh, idea in a way to the European Union. I mean, um, immediately also referring to yesterday's launch on the conference of the future of Europe uh, there is a great risk it seems to me uh, that within the current European uh, constellation uh, the idea is that uh, the solution to lack of democratic uh, legitimacy uh, can be purely um, um, uh, resolved by means of a kind of uh, let's call it representative democracy light in some 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 Uh, uh, let's say modest injections of forms of representative democracy into the European Union's system. And so in that sense, I think ANUMI might be uh, an important element also because uh, particularly in recent years, and we've seen it with the European elections of 2019, uh, there is an increased societal interest in the European Union in in, in political integration. There's a, a very interesting recent um, a research paper by Mary Kelder and others, an um, LSE research paper on what they call the rise of insurgent Europeanism, um, which also indicates a kind of politicization of European uh, politics, of European matters, uh, and interest. And we see that also in a whole range of different surveys recently with regard to the Conference on the Future of Europe. One of them, for instance, is by a citizens' coalition, uh, a Citizens Take Over Europe. Uh, taking over Europe, uh, where these indicated that citizens would want to be uh, more directly involved also in, in, in elements of decision-making. Um, and so uh, the, the anomie stands then in the idea of the institutions and the elites uh, to go into a direction of a kind of, as I call it, a modest uh, reform around representative ideas, where society uh, in important uh, ways seems to be pointing to a much more participatory, uh, bottom-up type of idea uh, of dem- democracy and democratization. Um, so anomie is relevant there, I think. It it, it plays it teases out certain uh, specific dimensions of the democratic deficit. Um, and also the concept of fugitive democracy I find uh, intriguing and makes me think back of Sheldon Wallen's uh, work on this concept, um, where he, of course, identifies how spontaneous democratic politics, uh, when uh, they become sort of institutionalized uh, part of a a process of bureaucratization, of professionalization, of technocratization, uh, democracy uh, in those processes tends to suffer. And again, that is uh, clearly a great problem um, of the European Union uh, to um, engage largely, in what seems to be a kind of pragmatic, technocratic approach to politics, whereas many of the uh, the policies it actually engages in, and just think of the vaccine uh, uh, policy or the uh, recovery fund, these are issues that are extremely political uh, and of direct interest to citizens. So it's hard to see how the EU could go on with its technocratic, expert-based types of policy making without actually allowing for um, a much more um, comprehensive, systematic way of, of democratizing.
0: It matches perfectly well with my second question, because why ever this democratic deficit is visible in the EU now? Because as you note in your paper, the European com- uh, community was envisioned by its fathers, founding fathers as an elitist and precisely technocratic project. So what has changed in the time that we are experiencing it now so clearly?
1: Well, maybe, maybe, <laughs> uh, maybe it should be formulated the other way around. What has not changed uh, from those early days of a, uh, ultimately, as many uh, many scholars and other observers have pointed out, of course, the, the origins, uh, the birth of the European project, uh, despite its, its much broader rhetoric, was ultimately a functionalist, uh, utilitarian, market-making project. And in that sense, certain things have not changed, uh, but the context did change. And so some scholars like, uh, or, or, or um, uh, uh, experts like, like Richard Youngs, they talk about the poly crisis of the European Union. And you could say that at least with, well, perhaps we should start with the convention of the early 2000s, the failure failure of, of, of explicit constitutionalization of the European Union. Uh, but then in its wake, a whole series of other crises, like, uh, of course, the financial and economic crisis, the Euros, Euro crisis, um, the uh, uh, migrant crisis, then uh, more or less uh, at the same time, uh, obviously with the crisis around terrorism, uh, Brexit as a, as, a, as a major rupture in the whole and uh, um, evolution of the European Union. And then of course, currently the health crisis, the pandemic uh, situation. I mean, these have all added to um, uh, um, amplifying, um, the, the the lack of capacity in a certain way of the European Union to really, in a robust and systematic manner, respond to such crisis. You see that with the migration crisis, you actually see it perhaps even clearer with the economic crisis, which we never really uh, got out of, uh, and particularly not in parts of Europe uh, like uh, Southern Europe and, and perhaps even certain parts of Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, this is an ongoing uh, uh, structural problem. Uh, and so, that accumulation of crisis probably explains, in a way, how the democratic deficit has become more upfront. Uh, Because if the EU is largely a functional project, uh, which derives the largest part of its its legitimacy from what scholars tend to call output-oriented legitimacy, so delivering the goods, then it hasn't been very um, effective in delivering the goods. Um, And even in the pandemic that's cleared, I mean, the the great confusion and delays around uh, vaccines, uh, where the EU was supposed to be taking a a pioneering role, but then of course, uh, in some ways, uh, did not do its job properly. And so this all adds indeed to a more uh, visible democratic deficit, but also an increased uh, bottom-up politicization, as I said before. There's, a, there's an increased awareness in society, actually, um, that the way the EU is functioning currently um, contains a lot of problematic dimensions.
0: Would it be not enough further to pursue the logic of parliamentarization, so to endow the European Parliament with the right to initiative, which was actually one of the postulates of the current president of the commission, Ursula von der Leyen, or perhaps to put it differently, why parliamentarization is not enough and the citizens themselves them, themselves should be empowered with the right to initiative or to participate directly in the EU policy? Well, I
1: think it's a very important question. Maybe we should actually uh, put a, a, a further dimension to it. I mean, even parliamentarization of the EU is highly contested. We probably come back to this later in our conversation, but there's clearly an enormous resistance to any kind of change. And so for some political forces, member states, and even institutions, um, a modest uh, um, um, sort of extension of, 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 let's say, democratization through parliamentarization, already that is uh, considered uh, too radical. Um, but to return to your question, uh, it seems to me that going back to that notion of anomie, if what I tried to indicate was uh, building uh, democratic structures with an imaginary of a democracy that actually doesn't work anymore. So let's say the classical uh, liberal representative parliamentary based type of democracy, if that's already on the level of the member states, a system that doesn't seem to work anymore, that that shows great problems in terms of um, uh, including citizens, of of, of, um, um, making citizens enthusiastic about the democratic political project. Uh, If we see great problems with the traditional role of uh, political parties as intermediaries, um, if we see great problems in terms of extensive distrust towards all kinds of institutions, including parliaments. Like uh, in the country I live, in, in, in Italy, there was a, a great majority in the last year's referendum on a, on a sizable reduction of the number of parliamentarians. That, that are all, these are all indications of um, a representative parliamentary system that has great problems in its own right. Um, So if you take that route on the European level, I at least have great difficulty of understanding of how that then would um, uh, really, in a robust manner, um, produce extensive, comprehensive, uh, bottom-up democratic legitimacy within wider European society. Um, So that seems to me a a, a core problem. Um, I'm not saying that, for instance, the right to initiative for the European Parliament wouldn't be a very good idea. Uh, And as I said, I think for many, it's already too radical. Um, But if we uh, try to visualize this, um, maybe in my future work, I will will, uh, indeed uh, publish a a couple of maps and and, and visualizations of this, but it seems to me that alley of parliamentarization is one alley, but it needs to be uh, paralleled by other instruments, channels, that take citizens, put citizens in a much more central dimension. And so there's a lot of civil society organizations that around the Conference on the Future of Europe make a call around a permanent citizens assembly. And that's just one example of where you could um, link what Wallen calls spontaneous politics, existing spontaneous politics, often where more radical and interesting and creative ideas come from, and try to, in one way or the other, um, channel it into the institutions. And that is, I think, extremely important. But uh, again, while we come back to this in our conversation, it seems highly unlikely that the EU and its institutions is ready to open up for that type of more structural reform.
0: Actually, we already had a conversation with Markus Patberg, who was advocating hmm. the permanent constitutional assembly. And indeed, we'll come back to these uh, ideas how to reinvigorate democratic um, dimension of the EU later on. But now we will move to the, this rule of law part of your paper. So what kind of narratives have you identified with regard to the rule of law understanding in the European U- Union legal discourses?
1: Well, what we, we try to say in this working paper, indeed, the, the, the argument is really about... complex relationships between democracy and the rule of law Um, and so uh, uh, with regard to the dimension of the rule of law um, it has to be acknowledged I think that there is um, in a way uh, there's not there's no consensus about what the rule of law is supposed to be and inherently it is a concept uh, that, that includes tensions between these different dim- uh, dimensions, internal dimensions, etc. And so, uh, whereas some uh, um, colleagues and experts in particular um, uh, legal scholars tend to insist on a kind of monistic universalistic view. So that's one perception. We actually identify three perceptions in the working paper, um, the most uh, diffused uh, conception is indeed this this monistic universalistic view that sees the rule of law actually as a a kind of uh, part of an overlapping consensus on the European level, you might say, including a couple of core dimensions like legality, access to justice, and things like that. Um, and the whole idea is uh, that it's largely again, a, a kind of expert concept. Uh, it's guarded by, expert institutions and experts in in, in a more individual sense or particular courts, of course. Um, And so in in this perception of the rule of law, the problem, the main problem, is the non-compliance with EU standards uh, regarding the rule of law by by member states. And the solution, hence, is to impose, in a way, um, um, compliance. And so this stems, in a way, from, you could say, in the background, there is a kind of federalist, monist perception of the European Union. And the emphasis is just like actually in the behavior of the, the Court of Justice of the European Union on uh, the core uh, principles of let's call it the Bible of integration through law. That is the supremacy of EU law, direct effect, etc. Um, this is in reality a partial understanding of the rule of law. It's an internalistic judicial understanding, a legalistic view. Um, And what we try to say in the paper, there are other ways of looking at the rule of law that are important, um, that actually point to other dimensions that are actually perhaps the core of the rule of law itself. That is the way it actually operates in society. And so the first then um, perception is this monistic universalistic view. A second one is much more critical in many ways, comparative and contextually sensitive and of course we uh, uh, it's a bit stylized to say that there are three perceptions of the rule of law but i think you can by and large identify these three positions the second one actually says well there might be a kind of minimal understanding of the rule of law uh, all countries want indeed uh, fair and equal systems of justice etc but the contexts are highly different. And so uh, very relevant for the debate on the crisis of the rule of law is an East West difference. Um, And there is obviously a difference, a complex difference, uh, which means that the the diffusion of the rule of law in Central and Eastern Europe since the nineties has faced great problems that have not been Uh, recognized though. And so you could say the the approach of the EU has been largely uh, a kind of, as as a scholar Gunther Frankenberg calls it, a kind of IKEA, IKEA approach to the rule of law. That is, you have a one-size-fits-all type of uh, uh, box with rule of law particles, you send it to center and Eastern Europe, there they reconstruct it, and it all works very nicely um, with all the small problems we all have with constructing Ikea uh, furniture, of course, but, um, but that idea of the diffusion and the transfer of the rule of law is problematic because it, it doesn't have those antennas, those forms of um, uh, an engagement with the local uh, realities that would allow it to reform um, the rule of law around local problems. And of course, there are still uh, problems around a kind of some uh, scholars from the region call it the kind of hyper positivism within judicial systems, uh, related in many ways to uh, legacies of socialist legality, uh, legal education, things like that. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other problems that indeed stand at the basis of the current populist conservative uh, so called backlash. Um, that rule of law policies would need, take, need to take into account and uh, need to address to be effective. So that's the second perception. And then the third one is really the dark version, you might say, uh, which is the version that, that much of the uh, right-wing conservative populists tend to uh, articulate pretty aggressively. And that is a kind of sovereigntist understanding, uh, which by the way, cannot be entirely dismissed because basically what it says, the rule of law and the understanding of the rule of law is always a bottom-up issue. It's part of the, uh, the, the, the political community in which it operates itself. And so you see that, of course, in claims by Kaczynski and the rule of law, uh, the, the, the Law and Justice Party in Poland or Orban in Hungary, but this was also an argument around Brexit uh, among some of its proponents. Um, and so uh, that third one, um, has some um, important dimension. The problem is uh, the identification of the problem can then perhaps be shared. Uh, There is some kind of uh, tension between top-down interference from international institutions and local understandings of the rule of law. The problem is the solution offered is a kind of Europe of the peoples as many of these right uh, uh, wing conservatives now call it, uh, which in a way closes the door Uh, because it basically says it's just our national business and the EU has no business there. Well, that uh, evidently doesn't work in a rule of law based European Union.
0: I would like you to assess somehow the third dimension that you uh, already explained. So we mostly know that the illiberal critique of the rule of law means. So it means that the rule of law uh, cannot possess a valid and commonly accepted definition in the pluralistic legal sphere of the EU. So as the first dimension you identified um, explains, Uh, the illiberal critics are saying that uh, the rule of law is actually an ideological instrument to discipline the other member states, some member states, so precisely the Eastern, uh, member states of, of the European Union, and is it a valid critique, according to you?
1: Well, uh, as I tried to indicate before, um, and as I, by the way, in general in my work tend to argue, I, I believe that it should at least be a critique that, that to some extent, it needs to be taken seriously, um, and particularly uh, from the side of East Central European countries. Um, that is, uh, it can be, I think, argued that uh, those societies, uh, so that is basically the, the, the last additions uh, to the, the European family, let's lo- use that as a terminology. <laughs> um, uh, they have not had a lot of influence, a kind of constituent role in, in, in various of the institutions and norms and standards that have been developed a- around the rule of law. Uh, and so that, there is some validity there, um, but it's also, I, I believe it, it needs to be taken uh, and very much in, into consideration. And we'll talk about it later, I suppose, but from a perspective that argues um, um, the rule of law has fundamentally important uh, societal and sociological dimensions. Um, and so indications, and one could reread Uh, And I have to admit, you need to be very, uh, how to put it, um, uh, um, uh, 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 put some effort into it, but you could reread some of this critique uh, from the populist side, so to speak, as an indication of a need for taking the context seriously uh, and closely look at lingering problems uh, of transitional justice uh, of what is ultimately a process of democratic transformation that never really uh, uh, finalised into a kind of form of consolidated democracy, um, and if we take that seriously, it teases out a number of of the the, the very uh, problematic dimensions of a top-down one size fits all one uh, size fits all uh, um, EU rule of law uh, um, policy, and that has a lot to do. And this is a slightly more in in certain ways, even uh, almost uh, philosophy of science type of dimension, but it it relates also to the problematic idea that you can simplify uh, uh, the rule of law by creating uh, simple standards, uh, simple criteria measuring the rule of law, what Martin Krieger calls an anatomical approach, a checklist type of approach, which is exactly not Sensitive to contextual differences, um, and that is perhaps its biggest problem. Um, so, in that sense, uh, to, to to reformulate, I mean, it's important, I think, to take that critique serious, but then to reformulate it into uh, something that can actually help us to rethink rule of law policies that would make it more variegated and. That wouldn't take the IKEA approach, but it would actually um, take uh, local uh, uh, dimensions extremely seriously.
0: Now, I wanted to make a link between the democracy deficit and the rule of law crisis, as you made in your paper. So, how do you precisely understand the relation between the democracy deficit on the EU level and the populist? or even authoritarian tendencies in some of the member states?
1: Well, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. It's a, it's a crucial question uh, to think about the democratic deficit in relation, indeed, to these forms of backsliding. And I will try to explain it a little bit better. I think you can at least think about it in two ways, um, in a bottom-up way, in a top-down way. Um, so bottom-up, you could say, uh, as argued by Dan Kellerman, for instance, that the authoritarian tendencies, uh, the, the what is generally called backsliding, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe uh, is undermining uh, democracy in the Europe. And so it's a kind of bottom-up d- democratic deficit. Uh, it It reduces importantly, the possibility of democratic interaction between member states between institutions, and to give you one example, it's it's particularly clear also within the in the context of the conference on the future of Europe, uh, because indeed, for instance, the uh, let's call the European Parliament uh, family, uh, European Conservatives and Reformists, which hosts a lot of our um, conservative uh, populist uh, friends, uh, like for instance Krasnodebsky, Um who's a major figure in that party family. He's also an observer in the executive board on the Conference on the Future of Europe. And the ECR has made a lot of explicit statements on how how necessary it is to to, uh, object to uh, notions of European federalism, all these political activists with their federalist pro-EU ideas have to be stopped uh, and so on and so forth. and so that makes uh, uh, that that also uh, renders extremely clear the unwillingness, in a way, to allow for plurality, democratic interaction by between various actors within the European context. But by the way, uh, I should also mention here that this is not only a type of be- behavior that you see uh, uh, from the part of the Hungarian or Polish governments, or so. I think it's also clear, like there was a recent letter open letter by 12 countries, um, let's say the Nordic sort of uh, uh, austerity-loving countries that equally indicated the Conference of the Future of Europe should not be engaging in any kind of legislative action or so, uh, indicating that, well, uh, they were not actually very willing to rethink uh, democratic dimensions uh, in in the European Union. So that's a a kind of, in a way, related to a bottom-up dimension linking Uh, democratic problems and issues in member states to the larger uh, European construct. Uh, But there's also indeed the the top-down dimension um, where one could argue the EU itself, due to its democratic deficit, is not able to, in a very convincing way, deal with problems on the ground in member states. in many respects, it faces huge problems of democratic legitimacy, of accountability. Uh, and there again, you get this critique then of a kind of colonialization of Central and Eastern Europe, etc. cetera. Um, and various studies have brought this out, like um, colleagues in, in the uh, ReConnect project in a paper of a couple of years ago, indeed indicated that the more The european union uh, uh, wants to in a way actively intervene the more likely it is going to produce uh, perverse effects that is higher rates of resistance and perhaps even around uh, 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 citizens in the societies concerned a greater sort of distanciation from the european uh, institutions Um, and there's also another problem uh, that particularly Dmitry Kochenov has pointed out, and I think he has a really important point, that is the practice what you preach part of the European Union isn't always working very well. That is, uh, the EU itself has in many ways great problems with holding up its own standards of the European uh, rule of law. Uh, we see that even within the, uh, the, the court of justice of the European Union. And so that makes its, uh, its standing even more problematic. So I think this, this, this relationship is extremely important. And I wouldn't agree with those that merely place the current democratic turmoil as a problem in Hungary and Poland or so. Uh, we definitely cannot reduce it to that. And there's an interaction between the problems on the ground in those countries and the lack of democraticness of the European Union itself.
0: In this context, very interesting seems the PSPP judgment from the last year uh, from the German Constitutional Court uh, because it also also displays how the European institutions are reluctant to respond to um, democratic claims from the member states. And you read this PSPP judgment as an instance of domestic institution that rejects the decisions taken up by the EU institution that uh, actually encroaches encroaches solid democratic process. And as you mentioned this paper um, uh, from the Reconnect series, there was also a similar paper with similar results that indicates that uh, the more interventionist the ECJ is, the more skeptical towards the EU and democracy the national polity becomes. So indeed, there is this tension of uh, being too interventionist and then being too repulsive towards the EU institutions. So in this context, perhaps we can ask, what is the role of the EU institutions in social embedding? So shall it be only the passive observer of, uh, conforming with some rules, or should be more active in, uh, in that process. And it reminds me also of the Copenhagen criteria process, uh, that perhaps we should also take you on, into account in this conversation. So was it uh, this Copenhagen process has been it, uh, insufficient to socially embed an EU understanding of the rule of law in the candidate member states?
1: These are the questions now. Well, these are excellent questions indeed. And I, I, I would immediately like to, to make a distinction. I mean, um, of course you're right to, to talk about the PSPP judgment, um, um, but um, I would see the Bundesfassungsgericht as a, a clearly an institutional actor. Um, and so I, I, I have a bit of difficulty of, of reading its resistance in a way Uh, to uh, 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 EU law and the the importance of EU law within the German context as a form of democratic resistance. Um, You could also read it in a way as a kind of expression of national sovereigntyism in a certain way. And so the distinction I would like to make is that um, surely uh, the relation between national institutions and international uh, uh, European institutions um, is at stake. Uh, But what I increasingly am thinking about that the only real way of um, um, creating a a virtuous type of relationship uh, is by adding a a third dimension. That is a really societal uh, dimension that is neither part of the uh, fully part of the member state political and judicial uh, architecture, um, nor of the European uh, Union institutions itself, but plays a kind of third actor type of role. Uh, And there, uh, yeah, of course there are uh, great tensions um, that are important, but that also need to increasingly, I think, in one way or the other, find um, uh, institutional platforms to be able to openly uh, debate Differences and perceptions, and there, I think it's lack. There's a lot uh, that is lacking, um, as you as you indeed said before. There is still too much of a picture of the European uh, uh, Union as an actor imposing its positions, of the Court of Justice imposing its so-called competence competence. Uh, and there's a great paper by Richard Bellamy and Sandra Kräger recently. Uh, where they come back to the discussion about so-called constitutional pluralism, which clearly indicates uh, um, that, uh, as we <laughs> 20 years ago uh, tended to call it uh, around the Convention on the Future of Europe, there's, uh, there's a need for unity in diversity. Um, but that diversity needs to find ways to be expressed. Um, and returning then indeed to not so much the institutional dimension, but more the societal dimension, if the societal dimension could be a third dimension, uh, so uh, the EU, um, the nation states, and then societies in Europe, well, then you could have uh, you could also have an interesting uh, factor in European politics that renders that 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 um, deadlock uh, of a kind of blame game between member states in the EU. It would render it much more uh, much less effective. It would neutralize it in a way, because if uh, a society, society, civil societies in Europe would be able to mobilise and have a, a, a forceful force uh, also on the supranational level, then it would be much harder for national politicians to say, yeah, but well, Brussels is imposing this on us, but if actually they are all parts of their own society have been collaborating in, co-deciding on these matters, uh, you can't really make that argument anymore. But I mean, there's little imaginative thinking, I believe, around uh, such dimension, and that is really unfortunate.
0: Yeah, indeed, your paper, the core of your paper, actually is this rule of law from the societal perspective, and you argue that it's a totally better uh, understanding than purely legalistic approach in the context of the EU. but how can we imagine this societal uh, embeddedness of the rule of law in the countries such as the uh, member states from the east central europe where the civic constitutionalism is still weak and not well developed so how can how can we imagine that uh, the rule of law from this perspective societal perspective will be well more entrenched embedded in uh, in society
1: well um- you, you, you use the term civic constitutionalism, you could of course say this is weak across the board. There are few countries in Europe apart from Switzerland maybe where uh, there is a continuous active interaction between society and and, and 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 institutions which contains a certain form of constituent dimensions. Uh, but but getting to the, the sociological societal understanding of the rule of law, the argument actually in the paper is not It's better, or it needs to uh, replace a legalistic understanding. It's much more complementary in a way, but in certain ways, and that would be my argument, it's also fundamental. Um, And as Martin Krieger has said a number of times, and others as well, uh, I mean, the rule of law is too important to leave it to lawyers. Because ultimately, it is a social, societal uh, instrument. Uh, it's not something, it, 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 it's simply not uh, sufficient to think that the rule of law uh, needs robust uh, judicial institutions, which have their own internalistic, professionalized language. Uh, ultimately, of course, and I think that's the great, one of the great contributions of Martin Krigge, who is one of the most interesting experts, I think, on the rule of law. Uh, his, his point is really, we need to focus on the end users, the actual objectives that lie outside of the rule of law in a way, at least if we understand it um, um, in a purely legalistic sense. And so, well, the first point is then really uh, the rule of law is a social fact. It's not just a technocratic legalistic uh, edifice uh, and it needs to uh, produce tangible societal benefits. Like indeed, as we also say it in a way in the the more um, Uh, how to put it codified language of the rule of law, access to justice, fair and equal treatment, fair trial, that kind of stuff. Um, But we know so little about how that actually operates in society itself. It's one thing to have uh, your constitution or other norms stating you have the right to a fair trial. It's a completely different thing whether that really works in practice. And again, this is not just an East Central European problem. I mean, in my um, country of residence, Italy. (laughs) I mean, I I think across the board, people would agree that access to justice is a huge problem, Um, even if it is guaranteed in the uh, institutional normative uh, uh, context. And so uh, rule of law is a social fact rather than a a technique. Um, It's about. uh, also, and that that is another extremely important dimension that needs to be highlighted for it, it provides the first type of sort of framework that allows society to operate. Uh, And so that means it's not just a static issue of the rule of law. It's actually an active issue because it allows civil society, media, journalists to be active. and to also in a way actively uphold the rule of law. So it also means I feel a, a sociological perspective on the rule of law puts emphasis on the dynamics, not merely on the static correspondence of uh, norms and, and statutes, etc., that correspond to what we think the rule of law should be. Um, and so, as I said before, then this approach is interested in its end users, but unfortunately we know so very little about that. And there's really very little extensive, systematic comparative uh, analysis. Uh, Just recently, for instance, in the Netherlands, there was a research project by uh, Mark Hertog of the University of Groningen uh, is being financed. He's actually taking this up directly. and also researches Hungary, and I think also Poland, looking into what do people actually think uh, when you ask them about the rule of law? What are their perceptions? And already earlier uh, research in the 90s indicated that in some countries, large parts of society understand the rule of law as something for s- other groups, as facilitating and privileging uh, other groups, positions, etc. And so actually uh, understanding the rule of law and perhaps even in a larger sense, human rights is something that is negative with regard to their own position something that they cannot afford or actually discriminates against them. And so these visions and and perceptions are extremely useful, I think, because a functioning and and an effective rule of law would need as few people as possible that think in that way Uh, because they apparently understand the rule of law not as a benefit, but as something that is obstructing their social uh, trajectories. and so, and that's a final remark around this, the sociological view, then also in great contrast to some of the more legalistic understandings, puts strong emphasis on the really existing different perceptions of the rule of law. Um, and they need to be analyzed, but they need also be taken into account into operationalized actual uh, policymaking around the rule of law to address uh, these types of situations.
0: Indeed, there is some much uh, new research about how the citizens actually perceive some of the concepts that we usually lawyers take as granted take for granted so, for example, now uh, recently book was published by American Greek. Um, sociologist lawyer a political scientist who asked people all around the world what democracy means it's such an obvious step, but it was uh, not undertaken before and. Now, I wanted to ask you in the context of what we already mentioned uh, about the resistance of the institutions not to somehow change, transform, by what means we can actually reinvigorate democracy in the EU? It is hard to imagine, but let us be uh, more, um, let us blue paint the sky, you know.
1: Okay. Well, uh, there are various ways, of course, um, but they're not all um, equally effective. Um, And well, we we might come back to that later. Uh, They're extremely relevant also in the light with yesterday's launch of the Conference on the Future of Europe. Um, It seems to me you could broadly identify two approaches. The first one would be a kind of uh, tinkering, a recalibration a kind of re-engineering partially some of the uh, European institutions and the relationship between the institutions, and in a certain way, also the relation between citizens and the institutions. So that's one way, uh, a kind of incremental, um, um, modest way of going uh, about things. The other way would be a radical leap forward, uh, uh, a really structural re imagining of the European Union as a a democratic system. Uh, And that would need, of course, much more uh, forceful steps with probably uh, some kind of new constitution. Um, And I think I already indicated throughout this talk that I think that the first option, it's not to be um, completely ignored, but it's very unlikely um, to uh, address the great uh, uh, problems the European Union is facing uh, in terms of uh, lack of, uh, of, of, of democracy um, within its institutions. And so in that sense, if the only option taking is a kind of re-engineering uh, of European democracy, we know the most recent uh, uh, real attempt was the Spitzenkandidat in eBay, uh, uh, which, reverberated nicely uh, amongst elites and also here in Florence at the European University Institute, large debates, etc. But of course, in wider sense, ordinary citizens won't even know what you're talking about if you mention these, these aspects. And of course, it it, it ultimately, it understands um, um, ameliorating democracy merely by, uh, I would see it as a largely inter-institutional, inter- inter-institutional vision. That is, if you slightly change the relations between the commission and the parliament uh, in relation to European parliamentary elections, well, then you have an important boost of democracy. I don't think that is sufficient. And so I think I invite everybody to imagine in a much more radical way, Uh, in a bit in a way I tried to uh, indicate before that is, uh, we probably need a third pillar uh, different from the uh, uh, third pillar uh, post 1992, but a third pillar in terms of uh, civil society, broader society being structurally included, systematically included, as Alberto Alamanno and, and James Organ recently put it in a wonderful book they, uh, they edited on uh, the democratic uh, dimension of European integration. So the second option in a way, a constituent option, an option that that, that, uh, much more structurally wants to uh, revise European institutions, seems to be much more fruitful. But of course, I realize uh, that it's also uh, um, not even a, a, a real utopianism, but largely just merely utopianism, giving the political will, giving the political landscape at the moment.
0: My last question will regard precisely the conference on the future of Europe. And as an interesting point, I will just add that yesterday it was launched and only 500 people watched it watched the launching of of the event. So we see how elitist this project is. So do you see any democratizing potential in the agenda of the conference of the future of Europe?
1: I have very mixed feelings about the whole conference on the future of Europe. Um, And I noticed also uh, particularly around uh, civil society, activists and organizations, a very similar feeling. Um, You mentioned the launch yesterday, which not only in terms of the very low, let's call it uh, interest within European society was problematic, but also in the whole setup, I feel that sort of this this classical um, 19th century way of speaking to the people from some kind of far off uh, podium Uh, even if there were 27 Erasmus students present, it didn't really speak, I think, uh, to any kind of European public. Uh, And so, uh, but it it stands for, uh, and we, I mean, you you could put this in much more uh, tangible terms, it stands for a way uh, uh, the democratic problem is approached by European institutions. That is, there's a rhetoric and that rhetoric has existed for a long time already with the white paper on civil society in early 2000 by the European Commission. There's this rhetoric, but there's no willingness whatsoever to put it really into some kind of institutional and political practice. And that makes it actually, I think potentially the Conference on the Future of Europe might be very dangerous because Uh, As some called it also um, in recent debates about the Conference of the Future of Europe, the genie is out of the bottle Um, and increasingly people, and we see that again in various of these uh, surveys and consultations of citizens, people want to have a say, or at least a part of the people want to have a say, but then the instruments are not being provided. And so on the negative side, I think uh, the Conference of the Future of Europe might just not add up to anything. Also, due to this, uh, this widespread resistance by various member states and not only um, uh, the usual suspects of Poland and Hungary but in many other states look at for instance, how many states yesterday had uh, broad um, um, events organized around the conference of the future of Europe, how m- many of the media actually reported on the event uh, very few during maybe a little bit more today ex post um, and so um In that sense, uh, there's the negative uh, potential or very likely negative outcome, and that doesn't add up to anything, but a more radical reading negatively would be, it's actually counterproductive and people become actually increasingly um, um, uh, fed up and and, and, and dissatisfied with the European institutions. Also, we didn't mention it yet, but this digital platform, and has a great range of, of very problematic dimensions. And as many observers say, it's most likely to invite those that are already in the Brussels bubble or at least very knowledgeable about it. Uh, but wider society, exactly those people that are dis- dissatisfied, that tend to be Eurosceptic in one way or the other, they're not interested or willing to participate or actually don't really know about it. Um, um, but then indeed, there's a, there's a, Potential positive side to the conference as well. We don't know where it will ends. Where it will end? I mean, uh, a big time constraint is there. Of course, it will only last nine months, um, and it's likely that the uh, the citizen panels will only start fun- functioning later this year or early le- uh, next year. That would be at the very end of the whole trajectory. But still, I mean, there are a lot of uh, creative ideas floating around. There's a great interest by various. Um, Mobilize civil society actors, like I mentioned already, citizens take over Europe, uh, where there's, it's more than fifty NGOs or so, Europe wide, uh, that collaborate, that propose new new ideas, that, for instance, uh, insist on a strengthening of the European citizens' initiative, perhaps even including uh, uh, aspects that relate to treaty change, etc. Um, and so. Um, at least from my perspective, and I've been studying across the board, um, domestic processes, particularly around constitutional change, at least in some cases, there are more long-term um, effects. Um, the Irish case is important with the convention and the citizens assembly that recently produced, again, a very important suggestion to change the Irish constitution, which in many, many ways, uh, the Irish constitution, I mean, is still hanging in the spirit of the 1930s. Um, um, the Icelandic example can also be uh, mentioned because a lot of uh, observers thought the uh, constitution process was dead in the woods in 2013 with a changing government, etc. But it keeps on haunting Icelandic politics. And there are again uh, proposals for at least partially changing the Icelandic uh, constitutional uh, dimension. And so these processes. Uh, are difficult uh, to grasp beforehand. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, there's a lot of attention to design, but there's also a lot of possibilities for ad hoc um, inventions, etc. And so we, we don't know uh, where this wind up, will wind up. I really hope uh, that there will be some kind of uh, lesson learned for the existing institutions that are often too much tied to status quo perceptions. And they're too afraid to give away the the status quo. If even with the very limited potential that the design has uh, uh, created for citizens participation, um, if citizens manage, maybe with the help of civil society, actually put important, credible, convincing, uh, bottom-up, positions on the table, it will be difficult to completely ignore them probably. Um, but it also means that uh, also media and, 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 and national context need to pick up on this process. If it's just happening somewhere clo- behind closed doors almost or al- only involving the Euro files, it's, it, it, that, that sort of positive effect will be very difficult I feel.
0: And as far as the merits of the Conference on the, of the Future of Europe are concerned, do you see that there is any federalizing, I, there are any federalization ideas entrenched in this project?
1: Well, entrenched, uh, uh, it's difficult to see, I would say. Uh, and, and one of the things I'm actually uh, doing research on right, uh, right now is that um, I, th- I think it is striking how The big C word, as they call it, uh, uh, the 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 constitution as a term, as a concept, etc., is an enormous taboo. And even mentioning treaty change is seen as hyper problematic. So I've got a lot of uh, um, colleagues, scholars, as well that even, well, they tend to say, well, yeah, but you can also do it without treaty change. And and I wonder if that's really true. And, and so I feel. There is an inbuilt tabooization uh, There's an explicit political voicing of not willing to go a federalistic way. The Conference on the Future of Europe seems to be hardly a vehicle to make statements along these lines, although I have to admit the European Parliament is in that sense more aggressive and rightly so, I think. Um, but so a real federalizing dimension, I find it hard uh, to see it, that's probably also why they put uh, Giffen Hofstadt into the executive uh, uh, board, uh, so as to keep him in a way <laughs> a, a, a part of the institutional edifice, so he couldn't really make too radical statements. Um, and so, I, I, I'm very cautious about that dimension. But let's hope for at least some steps towards a future possibility again to debate more radical changes to the to the EU institutional architecture.
0: Yeah, indeed, let's hope it will go in this democratizing direction. Here we will end our conversation and thank you a lot for this talk, uh, Paul. And if you would like to be updated with our podcasts and written content, follow the RevDEM on Facebook or on Twitter, subscribe also to the RevDEM podcast on Spotify and enjoy more conversations with leading scholars. Thank you, and until the next time.
1: Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for the interesting conversation.
0: Thank you a lot.